Welcome everyone. My name is Raj Gandhi. I'm an infectious disease physician at Massachusetts General Hospital and professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. I'm here with Dr. Monica Gandhi, an infectious disease physician and professor of medicine at UC San Francisco. Over the next 55 minutes or so, we're gonna be talking about recent highlights from the virtual AIDS 2020 meeting and the virtual COVID-19 meeting. We'll talk a bit about updates in COVID-19 treatment We'll talk about new information on COVID-19 prevention and transmission. We'll talk about what's the latest on the impact of HIV and COVID-19. And we'll conclude with talking about how COVID-19 is affecting HIV care and prevention. A few housekeeping items. We're gonna talk for about 40 minutes or so, but there'll be 20 minutes or more, hopefully, for questions and answers. So please use the Q&A button to ask your questions. We do wanna thank the audience, those in the audience who have sent in questions already, and we hope to cover many of them during the hour. One last point, the dialogue is not available for CME, but will be available as a web and podcast after the live broadcast. And you can visit the uh, IASUSA.org site for information on accessing that. So we're gonna start off by, uh, by, with a few audience poll questions to kind of test, test the temperature of the audience. And I'm gonna turn it over to Monica. Okay, well, welcome everyone. Thank you very much. And the question here for you is, what do you think the advantages of population level masking are for the public for COVID-19? Is it A, to protect others from getting infected? Is it B, makes you look like Zorro? Number C, does it reduce the inoculum of virus to the wearer, leading to more mild or asymptomatic infection? If you do get infection, um, is it D, reduces the touching of the mouth and nose by healthcare workers? For example, is it E, provides universal precautions for the public during the pandemic? Or is it all of the above? Except maybe B. So please cast your vote. There's not a, all of the above, ex, uh, especially B, you can't, you can't answer that. No, you can't, then you just say B. <laughs> so I do like that two people said it makes you look like Zorro, but um, it did seem that 84% uh, of the audience uh, said all of the above. So I think it has multiple uh, advantages during the pandemic um, and uh, it, including protecting the wearer and others, excellent. And then the second question, watch. So we'll put up the second question now. So what are you or you, uh, your colleagues in your hospital using to treat people with uh, severe COVID-19? And you can check more than one if you'd like. Um, although if you do, you have to tell us what you're thinking. So um, A, hydroxychloroquine, B, convalescent plasma, remdesivir alone, dexamethasone alone. Remdesivir and dexamethasone in combination something else and that's where you have to tell us what that is uh, we're running out of remdesivir please send more or we're not treating people with severe COVID-19 go ahead and vote let's see what people are doing I don't see the oh there we go Okay, looks like kind of all over the map, um, which is, I guess, what we would think. We'll talk about many of these options during the course of the next hour, um, but a good percentage of you, 44%, are using combinations, so definitely something to talk about. So given that uh, we all are um, um, 
uh, many of us are focused on HIV and, and because of the AIDS 2020 meeting, we wanted to start out by talking a little bit about the virtual AIDS 2020 meeting. And I'd like to ask Monica, could you tell us what are the highlights from that meeting? What did you take away uh, that you think really has the most bearing on our practice in the next uh, years? Yes, so I do think um, there's a lot more than what I'm gonna say because <laughs> we're gonna go on to COVID, but I would just give you, I think the highlights that I thought were really important. I think the, uh, the abstract, the presentation that got quite a bit of attention and was really important was the HBTN 083 trial. And this was um, the prevention trial conducted to look at giving intramuscular cabotegravir every eight weeks compared to daily oral TDF-FTC among men and transgender women in multiple sites around the world and comparing those two in terms of prevention strategies for uh, reducing HIV incidence. And when we got the press release of this, um, of this abstract in May, it looked like cabotegravir was indeed non-inferior to TDF-FTC daily, but the updated data at the meeting really showed that IM cabotegravir was superior uh, to, um, to uh, the daily TDF FTC with a hazard ratio of 0.34 for reducing HIV incidence. And it, uh, there were only 13 um, HIV infections in the cabotegravir arm. So that was very exciting to see the superiority. Uh, I think we really do need to wait for the resistance data. There were five people of those 13 that got their injections exactly on time, which was very confusing why they, they, they'd um, have any HIV infection in those. So we're really interested, and um, Dr. Landreth kept on talking about that we do need the resistance data and a little more adherence data from that. But that was really important. The HBTN084 study, which involves women, uh, is fully enrolled, but we are not gonna get those results maybe until Croy or, or after. So I think um, the, the company will wait until we have the results in men cisgender men uh, and cisgender women uh, to file for approval. But right now it's being worked on. And so that's, that was, I think, big. Uh, I do think the weight gain, this was not a good meeting for weight gain. Um, actually, the last four meetings have not been good meetings for weight gain. Um, but this was not a good meeting for, for, weight, for showing us this persistent signal of weight gain um, with TAF. Uh, so the OPERA study was an observational cohort that really just looked at what happened when you switched from TDF to TAF and saw weight gain over nine months of up to 4.5 kilograms, which was really quite, quite a high amount. And then the advanced study, um, which was the 96-week results were, were presented at age 2020, had already seen the 48 weeks results in a paper. The 96-week results continued to show ongoing weight gain um, in those especially who are on TAF and dolotegravir together. So that continuing TAF dolotegravir weight gain of 12 kilograms and counting in women, um, actually that curve was shown a lot and uh, definitely was concerning there. Um, search prep, I think, is uh, a very important study that came out here because it really was the search study, which is this huge um, population level study uh, in 320,000 individuals and in, in, in East Africa and Kenya and Uganda. But this was really the rollout of PrEP within the search study. And I think it was very important, and I hope not lost, how 
effective surge was was in uh, the prep was in reducing HIV incidence even above HIV as treatment um, treatment as prevention and importantly how how effective it was in women. So in a population based way, there was a seventy nine percent reduction in HIV incidence of the women on prep. So I think we need to get past our fem prep vo uh, voice uh, clinical trial data at the beginning with women and get into the demonstration projects and really show ourselves, and this is the biggest study that's shown us, that women can take PrEP, you have to deliver it the right way, and it's absolutely effective for women. Um, and then I would really like your opinion on this, Raj. I mean, I will just summarize that um, this, this got a lot of attention. This was this uh, case in Brazil um, of uh, a very small study of five people who had been, um, this is chronically infected one individual who was on antiretroviral therapy, then they intensified it with dolotegravir and maravirac and gave nicotinamide, which is supposedly helps with the latent reservoir twice a day. And then um, 57 weeks at the time of abstract presentation and 64 weeks at the time of the meeting um, after taking off antiretroviral therapy, there was ongoing uh, suppression of iremia and even disappearance of HIV DNA and even the antibody went away. So I, 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 this got a lot of attention as one, but I would like your opinion on that. Yeah, you know, um, the cure field is, has been uh, really characterized by these, these singular cases. And unfortunately, singular is used deliberately here. There's these <laughs> um, uh, cases that really get a lot of attention, but then need to be built upon to, to make progress. Um, there's a famous article that has the title of um, going beyond n equals one for HIV cure research. And I think that's where we need to go. I think what I take away from these cases are not that um, in and of themselves, they get us where we need to go, but they uh, open up ideas about mechanisms. So if we can figure out what it is about nicotinamide that made a difference, that it have real latency reversal, that it have some other mechanistic um, impact, then I think we can make progress. But otherwise we, we are left in this situation that we, it's difficult to generalize from singular cases. I think what we'll see with this particular case is, is it lasting? It has been more than 60 weeks, so, so that's a start. Uh, we know from the Mississippi child that you can get uh, late um, a breakthrough. Um, and then we also need to know a bit more about, about um, the mechanism and, and what other persistence markers, what's going on with other persistence markers. This was, as you said, one out of five. So, but a lot to talk about maybe in the discussion. If people are interested, we can come back. Okay, great. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely heard him being asked if there was any surreptitious antiretroviral use. I mean, there was, there was definitely questions that came up and they are checking into that. Um, so then uh, I will just finish that we didn't just have an AIDS meeting because what happened was while we were planning AIDS 2020, um, it seemed completely irrelevant to talk about AIDS without talking about COVID. And because we were building a virtual platform because there was no way to have this meeting in person anyway, uh, it seemed relevant and important to have a COVID meeting at the same time. So the last day of the AIDS 2020 meeting was actually a COVID conference, the first abstract driven COVID meeting in the world. Um, and it was uh, an exciting day. It was one day it spanned um, a period of uh, from seven in the morning to two in the morning the next day. And it started out with um, a, uh, it, it was just kind of an all-star <laughs> event actually. I mean, it was a summary of information by Dr. Tedros, the executive director of the WHO, and then followed up by a talk by Dr. Tony Fauci about sort of the pathogenesis and clinical manifestations and therapeutics. And then Dr. Debbie Burks went over the epidemiology of uh, the epidemic in the U.S. at the time, which is even in this amount of time has changed a lot. Uh, and then, um, 
And then uh, we had a surprise appearance in the middle by Dr. Jane Goodall, which was very exciting and really meant a lot for her to speak on how the HIV pandemic came about from our treatment of animals. Uh, and so did SARS-CoV-2. And so, um, so did SARS and MERS, by the way. So it really was a plea to, um, in the setting of pandemics and our, and our and animal preservation and how we treat animals. Um, and then uh, we had other talks on the impact of uh, COVID on food insecurity, on um, health systems, the COVID disparities that we're seeing around the country, especially by Dr. Laron Nelson from Yale. And it really was just sort of a lot of processing of everything we're going through and then um, ended with Bill Gates and um, UNH Secretary General closing it up. The abstracts, I'll, I'm going to let, uh, I'm going to ask you, actually, because I think some of the notable abstracts really did deal with remdesivir and hepatitis C treatments for SARS-CoV-2, so we won't go into the abstracts now, but I think I'll be asking you okay. in that section. My favorite story you told me about this is you had asked one of the speakers to, or one of the speakers had been asked to record their lecture on COVID a week before, and they replied, I can't record it a week before because everything will change. So they have to really record it the day of or the day of. Oh, with Dr. Yeah. Tony Fauci, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, exactly right. That it just, it was irrelevant to record anything the week before. Um, so I, I think at this point, you know, um, it is now in the stage of the pandemic. I think even the president says something, um, I don't think he pronounced it right, but he used therapeutics this morning, the word. Um, I think it is the time that there's been a lot on therapeutics. And I would really be interested in asking you about, as clinicians, um, before we even get to what are the therapies that we can employ for COVID, how do you think about um, the dimensions of treatment? How do you think about the clinical manifestations and the stage and severity of disease before you think about what's next for what you would treat a patient with COVID with? Um, so the way I like to think about it is in a couple of different dimensions. So um, I will say one of my favorite um, television shows was the original Star Trek. Apparently they've gone on from there, but in the original Star Trek- You made us watch that growing up when we were in the same household. So. <laughs> we're gonna admit it, we're brother and sister, and mean my sister and I watch it, go ahead. <laughs> so you will remember then that Mr. Spock used to play three-dimensional chess. And so the dimensions of treatment <laughs> is what I like to um, um, think about when I think about COVID. So the first dimension is the host and their clinical manifestations. So I think about, um, is it a respiratory illness? Of course it is, but it's also much more than that. We've learned in a few short months that it's a multi-system disease. It can cause neurologic complications. It can cause um, cardiac manifestations. We've seen a number of cases of myocarditis, renal failure, a liver enzyme elevations. It's really affecting all parts of the body, even the famous COVID toes. Um, the um, uh, pathogenesis seems to be, for severe COVID at least, kind of a thromboinflammatory state. If you look at markers, and we've seen this over and over, the uh, coagulation markers can be sky high in severe COVID, the inflammatory markers can be sky high, and those track quite closely with uh, mortality, um, and, and there's good data showing that. One of the studies that I've learned the most about in terms of the host is a pathologic study. It was an autopsy study in the New England Journal a couple of months ago looked at people who died of COVID, so not, uh, seven people who had um, a pathology of the lungs and compared them to people who died of influenza or other causes. And what was characteristic about the lungs of the people who died of COVID was a couple of things. One was thrombosis, endothelial injury, and then an angiopathy. 
The second dimension uh, is the stage and severity of disease. Now, asymptomatic, presymptomatic disease, of course, is an important part of transmission. I think we'll talk about that um, in, in a little bit. But once you get disease, it really divides itself into mild or moderate, which is about 80% of disease, most of it. Severe, which is when people get hypoxic, um, usually end up in the hospital, and they can have uh, pulmonary infiltrates, and that's about 15%. And then um, critical, and that's about 5%, multi-organ failure, respiratory failure, et cetera. Why do I dwell on that? I think the treatment that you apply depends on really the stage and severity of disease and a bit about the, the host itself. And then I think about the interventions. You know, what interventions am I going to use? So then based on what you just said, I thought that was excellent to summarize all those manifestations. Do you break down how you think about treatment into antivirals and then those affecting the anti, sort of the inflammatory response? And um, is that how you break it down? I do. I mean, I think that there's an emerging paradigm here, antivirals, and we'll talk about some of those, I think are probably going to be most effective early on. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about some evidence for that. The second treatment, and you can think of it in some ways as an antiviral, is an antibody-based therapy. So whether it be convalescent plasma or monoclonal antibodies, probably also going to work uh, early on. And then anti-inflammatories or immunomodulators, I think, and there's some data that we'll talk about that those are going to be critical in the critically ill individuals, that is later on in the disease when this hyperinflammatory state that I was mentioning before really kicks in. So then let's just start with antivirals and how do you, um, I mean, is it just remdesivir and um, how, what else is there? So for now, um, what we have data on is remdesivir and there are more data that will come, um, but let's start with remdesivir because I think that's a good place to start. So remdesivir as a, a RNA polymerase inhibitor it's a chain terminator. The study that really shaped our thinking about remdesivir was the NIH-sponsored ACT study. I think many of you are aware of this. This, in a pretty short order of time, randomized over 1,000 hospitalized patients, this is an IV drug, to either get remdesivir for 10 days or to get placebo for 10 days. The main finding, this was in the New England Journal in May, was that remdesivir therapy shortened the time to recovery uh, by about four days, 15 days in placebo, 11 days with remdesivir. The really important point I want to make here, though, is that the effect of remdesivir was greatest. In fact, the effect was most pronounced in those people who are on supplemental oxygen, but not yet mechanically ventilated. And in that group, people on supplemental oxygen, not yet critically ill, uh, remdesivir actually did reduce mortality. It didn't reduce mortality in the overall population, but it did reduce mortality in that, that particular population. The other big trial that's been published, and we heard some more data about this in this meeting, uh, was this, is the SIMPLE trial. This was a five days versus 10 days of remdesivir trial done by the manufacturer. It was done in people with severe COVID-19, not yet critically ill, and it showed us that five days is as good as 10 days. And so largely we're using five days of remdesivir. One thing to keep your eye on is there have been press releases for remdesivir's uh, use in moderate COVID-19. Moderate means they're not yet hypoxic, but they do have lower tract disease. And the, and the press release um, has shown or has said that there's going to be some effect of remdesivir, but we don't yet know the details in terms of what that benefit is or what that effect is. At this meeting, at the virtual COVID meeting that Monica mentioned, um, we did see some data on remdesivir from this simple trial. What they did is they took about 300 people in the simple trial and they compared them to about 800 people uh, who did not get remdesivir from a retrospective cohort. Okay, so 300 people who got remdesivir in the five versus 10 day trial, 
800 people in a retrospective cohort who did not. What they showed is in this non-randomized study that there was a 62% reduction in mortality in the people who got remdesivir. Now, the reason that um, that is not as impactful for me as the ACT study is it was a non-randomized study. There were differences between the uh, people who didn't get remdesivir and the people who did. The most obvious was the people who didn't get remdesivir had a much higher rate of uh, usage of hydroxychloroquine. But whenever you do these non-randomized studies or comparisons, there's always a concern for confounding. But what is interesting is that the mortality benefit in that analysis that was presented and will soon be published is that uh, that mortality benefit was similar to the ACT study. So I don't think it's as definitive, but it goes in the right direction. The other uh, abstract that was at this meeting from the simple trial looked at what were the predictors of doing better. Um, and, and not surprisingly, this, this was not um, major news. If you were on lower amounts of oxygen, you did better uh, than if you were on mechanical ventilation. Uh, if you were younger, uh, you did better than if you were older. And then there were some interesting differences based on um, uh, uh, race and ethnicity as well. Um, so that's what I took away from this meeting when it comes to remdesivir. So uh, I really don't, uh, I, I don't think you need to talk much about hydroxychloroquine, maybe just a minute on it because uh, I'm excited to get to <laughs> thinking about inflammatories and we've had a lot of talk about hydroxychloroquine. We have had <laughs> too much talk about hydroxychloroquine, but Let's just say that during the months of March, April, May, where we were, were single arm studies, small trials, observational data. It was really in June that, and now into July that we're starting to see some data on, uh, from randomized trials. And what I can say in a, a couple of sentences in the, in the post-exposure prophylaxis setting, randomized trial has some limitations, did not show any effect of hydroxychloroquine. That was in the new journal limitations, and it's not the last word, but it doesn't show an effect. There was a trial in annals last week that was early treatment. Again, some limitations. We can talk about those if, if we'd like, but again, no benefit in the early treatment. There are more data to come though on early treatment. The recovery trial, which is a UK-based trial, had a preprint uh, in the last week or so from their hospitalized patient randomized trial. This was a big trial. 2,000 patients in the, um, uh, sorry, I should say thousands of patients uh, randomized either hydroxychloroquine or usual care and really no benefit in the hospitalized patients. And that preprint looks quite convincing. What is still out there, and I think we'll, we'll see in the future, is pre-exposure prophylaxis um, among healthcare workers. And there's a trial called Hero Hydroxychloroquine, which is um, looking at that particular question. So happy to talk in more detail, but finally, and I think appropriately getting some, some real data on hydroxychloroquine. And um, just one minute, if you could give us just a little bit, I know the recovery dexamethasone trial was just published a couple of days ago in New England Journal. It would be great to hear about steroids or anti-inflammatories. So that is, as I think is known, is the, the only and, and first drug that has been shown to have a mortality benefit. And what was the recovery trial data on dexamethasone? So just briefly, Steroids have been a, a point of controversy for years and years in, in viral pneumonia and in people with acute respiratory distress syndrome. But because of that hyperinflammatory state, it was really important to, to know what happens in COVID. So this particular trial done in the UK did randomize over 2,000 people to either get dexamethasone, over 4,000 people to get usual care. Bottom line is they showed about a 17% mortality reduction in the overall population. But when they delved down into it, that mortality reduction was largely in the people who were on mechanical ventilation. There, there was a 36% reduction in mortality. 
There was also an important mortality benefit in people who are on supplemental oxygen, although we don't know a lot about that group. It could be quite heterogeneous, but about a 20% reduction in mortality in people on supplemental oxygen. But here's the important point. If you weren't on supplemental oxygen, there was no benefit of dexamethasone. And in fact, there may be even some harm that couldn't exclude harm. So this is not a drug to use in an ambulatory patient um, at all, and not a, a drug to use in people who are not on oxygen. But in the right person at the right time, this is the right drug to use, I think. And the guidelines have reflected that um, pretty quickly, actually. Okay, and great. And I think uh, um, we'll, we'll hear more about tocilizumab and interferons and other things coming up because I think the randomized data still needs to, to come. Um, so maybe what we'll do here is we'll switch now from treatment to um, what we all know is really um, uh, the mainstay of getting control of this epidemic, which is prevention. So Monica, can you tell us where we are with COVID-19 worldwide as well as in the United States? Yeah, this is not, um, this is not like fun to do this. So um, it has been, you know, um, uh, it has, it has just been really quite a ride in, in the United States recently. I will say that um, worldwide, uh, we are over 15 million infections with COVID and uh, 622,000 622, deaths. The US became the epicenter of the pandemic on March 26, and we have uh, remained in that uh, position ever since. So the United States now has over 4 million cases, 4,062,000, and we have 145,000 deaths. The last month has seen um, increases in infections countrywide that are not um, that are not restricted to any one state but if you wanted to have regional variants in it it's really the south southeast and definitely the west here in California we just had a, uh, a, a governor announcement today that we've exceeded New York in terms of number of infections not per capita but actual number um, and uh, and here in San Francisco we've also seen increases in cases. Um, uh, but not deaths. Um, and all of that has led to um, sort of halting of reopenings around uh, the country uh, and some going backwards in some places and uh, some protests in others. But um, so that's where we are epidemiology wise. And with this epidemiology in terms of how are we going to prevent this from getting worse and maybe even starting with infection control? I mean, where we, many of us work, um, how is it that we can prevent infections and is there anything new from the CDC or any other guidelines around infection control? Yes, I mean, I think that this week was kind of a big week for infection control because two things came out from the CDC this week. Actually, last week, one major update was the percentage of asymptomatic infection uh, with SARS-CoV-2 is about 40%, it seems like in the well-done studies. So that speaks to the percentage of people who don't know they have it, but can still spread because we really realized in um, late February, early March, the degree of shedding a virus from the nose and mouth, even when you're feeling well, even when you're asymptomatic or presymptomatic about to get symptoms. So this week, the CDC, um, two things came about. It is quite hard. Uh, we have been doing a lot of test-based uh, 
decisions on isolation. So how, when do you start the day of isolation and when can you leave your house? Or when can you leave the hot, uh, you know, go into a skilled nursing facility, for example. And that test-based isolation has been really complicated because people can shed virus for a very long time, um, 60 days, 100 days even. Um, and, uh, but the infectivity of the virus seems to only last for about up to nine days maximum. And so that really, uh, that and how difficult it was to decide when people, the date of, uh, you know, people having prolonged periods of isolation, uh, all this data accumulating led the CDC to put out the recommendation that isolation should occur for 10 days after symptoms, after the appearance of symptoms. So um, if you feel well, uh, you know, um, if you have symptoms, you can go out again 10 days, you should not be infective um, and infectious to anyone else. And then uh, the other big uh, for us as healthcare workers update was the adding of face shields or eye protection. Even in routine patient encounters, we used to, we would have um, eye protection with a stronger mask during aerosol generating procedures or during swabbing. But now this idea is that even in an outpatient setting, because of the increased community prevalence, uh, even as you're just seeing a patient examining that patient, for example, you're gonna wear the eye shield and the mask. So that was just came out this week as well. So two big infection control. And what about universal masking, you know, beyond the healthcare setting? Um, Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, when we look back at universal population level masking and the recommendations in this country that uh, we may have public messaged this in an incorrect way. Um, because when we think about what happened in this country, April 3rd was the day that the CDC put out the recommendations that we should have cloth face coverings when we go out in public. This was absolutely recommendations. It even said um, in areas of high community, transmission and the, how that was messaged to the country was not as a mandate, was not forceful. It was really um, kind of a voluntary recommendation. And then states and cities made their decisions for themselves in a very local based way, as opposed to a national way that this city will say, yes, we have to mask. We, we San Francisco said that on April 17th, um, but, uh, and the state did it much later in California. So this idea that we were having this kind of sputtering um, recommendations on facial masking when we knew at least from countries that masked persistently since the beginning of the pandemic, Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong, Thailand, Vietnam, um, even the Czech Republic put out their very strong mandate on March 23rd. Places where the, the idea that if it spreads from the mouth and nose, you cover up that mouth and nose, um, and that was made a part of public health strategy early, those places did much better. Um, so, so this idea that you're gonna protect others and you're gonna protect yourself. Um, now we're seeing mass mandates being put out by governors, but um, I think we really need a national mass mandate. This is an absolute pillar of strategy control. So, you know, I wanted to ask you because we work in HIV and COVID as so many of our colleagues do. And there really is this question of so much of the interplay between HIV and COVID. And there is how uh, a lot of questions that our patients ask us is, am I more at risk? Am I more susceptible or am I more likely to get severe disease if I have HIV and I have COVID? And that is one of the first questions that come, that's come up for me as an HIV doctor. So I wanted to ask about your ideas on, uh, does HIV increase susceptibility to COVID? 
you know, that's the question I get asked by my patients also. So um, we didn't know the answer and we still are, are accumulating data, but there are now information on that very question. But let me start out by saying a little bit about which of our patients with HIV are getting COVID. Um, so we did a study at Mass General where we looked at about 50 people who had both HIV and COVID. This was basically during March and April. Um, the first thing we found, and this is not a surprise, um, and it's been true in all the series that have looked at this, is that most of our patients who have HIV who are getting COVID are virologically suppressed. Um, all of those 50 except for one were on therapy and they were virologically suppressed. And the same is true in a series from Atlanta recently and from New York City, as well as from Europe. The other point that, that our series showed and many series have shown now is that 85% of those people who have HIV who get COVID also had some other non-HIV comorbidity, either obesity or cardiovascular disease or something else that put them at risk for severe COVID. And that's been true also from the studies in Spain and as well as the studies from Germany. One thing that I think was novel and I think is important to remember as our, as our patients with HIV age is the risk in congregate settings. And, and you've written uh, forcefully about this. Half of our patients with HIV either lived in a congregate setting, our HIV patients who had COVID either lived in a congregate setting or they worked in a congregate setting. And that just reaffirms again, this, this critical issue of, of protecting the vulnerable. And then the last, and this sadly is not a surprise, but amongst our patients with HIV who got COVID, 80% of them were either a, a racial or ethnic minority. And that's compared to our clinic, which is about 40% racial ethnic minorities. So that disproportionate impact that we see of COVID is, is very much true in HIV. And I, I think that's what's led um, me to call this a twin pandemic. I mean, it really is a twin pandemic. But to really answer your question and the question our patients are asking, is HIV a risk factor for severe COVID-19? Let's go back to, to March or February and think about why we worried about that. Um, we worried about it because influenza, which is obviously a, a different virus, but one that has some similarities. Um, influenza is more severe in people with HIV who have advanced HIV, CD4 count less than 200, not on therapy. So we worried a lot that the same might be true for COVID. Most of the data so far has not shown a big impact of HIV status on COVID outcomes. One of the exceptions is a very large study out of South Africa. That particular study looked at over three and a half million people in the Western Cape, big study, and the public sector, adult patients. Over 500,000 of those people had HIV. And they looked at what was the outcome among people with HIV and people without. And there was an increased risk for um, a worse outcome among people with HIV, about a, a little under a twofold effect on, of HIV on uh, the hazard ratio. And this was a hazard ratio for death. Before we get too concerned though, a couple of caveats. One of the things that surprised a lot of us is that that HIV effect was irrespective of viral suppression. And that's different from influenza. The other thing that um, the authors are very clear about is that they cannot rule out residual confounding. Um, we didn't have data on socioeconomic status. We just talked about the fact that socioeconomic status is a big player when it comes to uh, having an impact on COVID and HIV. And they couldn't really account for obesity. And South Africa, like many uh, countries, has a number, has a very high rate of obesity. And finally, we know that people with HIV have a lot more touch points with the healthcare system. So that's another way that there could be some confounding. Here in the United States, the VA looked at this question. The VA has an amazing database. They have about 30,000 people with HIV and over 75,000 people without HIV in their database in the VAX uh, study. 
and they did not find here in the US any impact of HIV status on all the important outcomes, hospitalization, ICU um, admission or death. And so what do I think and what do I tell my patients? I, I would say that right now, there's little data to suggest that people with HIV have any excess risk. If there's an excess risk, I think it's going to be small. I think it, I tell my patients really it's the other aspects of their um, medical condition that I, that I get concerned about, whether they have obesity, whether they have heart disease, whether they have lung disease, but not so much their HIV. Okay, great. And um, we, I think this will come up with the Q&A, so I'll just ask you really quickly uh, here, but I think we can talk more about it, is uh, people will say, well, does my um, antiretroviral therapy protect me against COVID? Because aren't they both viruses? And so what's the evidence there? So again, scroll back to, to February. Um, th then people were talking about lupinavir, ritonavir. Why were they talking about lupinavir, ritonavir? Back in the MERS era and in, uh, in the SARS era, there was some effect of lupinavir, ritonavir, an HIV drug on those coronaviruses. There is some in vitro effect of, of uh, lupinavir, ritonavir on SARS-CoV-2. We'll come back to that in a minute. But when people have looked at it clinically, they really haven't found an effect of lupinavir, ritonavir. The first trial, it was actually the first randomized trial in, our, in this area, was done in China. About uh, 200 people <clears throat> hospitalized, no impact of lopinavir ritonavir versus standard of care on, on COVID outcomes. More recently, that same trial that we've been uh, touching on, the recovery trial, actually had over 1,500 people on lopinavir ritonavir, over 3,000 people who were on usual care, and again, no impact on 28-day mortality. Why do I think that lopinavir ritonavir doesn't work? A really interesting study out of Austria <laughs> looked at what kind of drug levels do you get when you give standard doses of lopinavir ritonavir? It turns out the drug levels you get compared to how much it takes to inhibit the virus, you would need to take 60 to 120 tablets of lopinavir ritonavir to get to the drug levels that we think uh, are needed to inhibit that SARS-CoV-2. So I think that's why um, I don't think this drug is gonna end up having an effect. One thing that people are asking about in the chat, and maybe I'll just say a word about, is what about uh, tenofovir? So, uh, remdesivir is a nucleoside analog, tenofovir is a uh, nucleotide analog. Could tenofovir have an effect? A trial that got a fair amount of play, a fair amount of publicity came out of Spain. Um, what they did is they took 77,000 people in Spain, looked at their antiretroviral regimen, and then they looked at their clinical outcomes from COVID. Now, all 77,000 didn't get COVID, only a couple of hundred people got COVID. But one intriguing thing they found is that the people who were on tenofovir disoproxyl fumarate, TDF, FTC had a half the rate of hospital admission than people who were on other nucleoside backbones. Before we run out and start giving out TDF, FTC for COVID, I would say that the big concern with that particular study is that they could not really um, exclude confounding. And I, and I would worry a lot about confounding. Who gets TDF, FTC? Tends to be younger people, tends to be people who are um, uh, don't have renal disease. And so there could be a real channeling bias going on here. So we need to, to see more data. There are preventative trials going on with TDF-FTC, but I'm not yet ready to say that any of these meds have a, a role with COVID. And I, I just tell my patients, do the things that Monica said, you know, do the masking, do the uh, social distancing, um, uh, do the other things that will prevent, don't rely on your HIV meds. I, I don't think that um, we have good evidence that those are gonna make a difference. Um, maybe I'll turn it around and actually ask you now, um, what, do you, um, what do we know about what COVID-19 is doing to HIV prevention and treatment? Uh, I think we know what COVID-19 is do doing to society, but what is it doing to HIV prevention and treatment? 
Yeah, I mean, I the way I think of this is this is the biggest setback I could imagine um, for our work in HIV. I'm very concerned because if you think about the four pillars of HIV control, which is HIV susceptibility or HIV risk, HIV testing to know who has it, HIV prevention and HIV treatment, I think we already have evidence that all four of those pillars are being affected. Um, there was a um, study that was uh, uh, shown at the uh, COVID-19 meeting um, in terms of susceptibility, because a lot of people are saying, oh, maybe there's no HIV risk going on. Um, and this was um, around LGBT communities. There was over 18,000 people surveyed from 138 countries. And, um, it, and there was such socioeconomic vulnerability that's been created among people, um, individuals around the world, that there is a real concern about increasing HIV susceptibility in this context of substance use, selling sex for money, other things that will put you at risk. Um, HIV testing, uh, there was uh, data from San Francisco that was just reported in the paper that our testing rates in this city where we test a lot is nine, are 90% down over the last three months. There was data from Boston that testing rates the Fenway, our HIV testing is down by 85%. That is a hallmark for how you control HIV is testing. Third is HIV prevention. Um, there is data out of uh, the meeting as well, the COVID meeting and the AIDS 2020 meeting that was presented from Boston, Douglas Krakauer and um, Ken Meyer from um, the Fenway that showed that PrEP refill lapses were up by 200% and uh, PrEP uptake was down, PrEP adherence was down by self-report and HIV testing was down. People, even in the context of telehealth and the ability to continue your PrEP through telephone visits um, was still down. And then uh, finally with HIV treatment, uh, we have an analysis from our clinic here at uh, UCSF, the Ward 86 clinic, that the odds of virologic suppression have dropped um, or virologic non-suppression, the odds have gone up essentially 1.3 odds that our viral loads, our viral virologic suppression rates are down. And that is in the context of telehealth because we have a lot of homeless patients, we have a lot of vulnerable patients and telephone is just not doing it. And especially for homeless and unstably housed patients, uh, they're even more likely to be virologically suppressed and we're making them coming in for viral load. So we are really seeing um, true, I think, effects on the pandemic on virologic suppression. And then I'll just end with UNAIDS has some very dire predictions of 500,000 excess deaths from AIDS in tw by 2021 if we do not work on getting antiretroviral access to low and middle income countries, which has already plummeted in the context of COVID-19. Prices have gone up. So I'll end on that cheery note and then we could go to mm -hmm. questions. So I am worried about the impact very much. I, share, I definitely share your concern. We've come so far in HIV, but we can't let this, you know, derail us and I, I, I share that worry that it is so yeah. something to redouble our efforts around. A number of questions have come in. Maybe I'll ask you the first one, Monica. Um, this is a hot button issue. Um, what is your take on the aerosolization of SARS-CoV-2 in terms of community transmission? So I really um, uh, got a sense of this because I uh, uh, gave a talk with um, a physical scientist in a panel. And the physical scientist was talking about aerosolization. And then I and another infectious disease person was talking about aerosolization. And I realized that it is possible that we have different definitions of what's an aerosol and a droplet. And the traditional infectious disease 
and epidemiologist um, definition, it's just sort of a matter of epidemiology that this is likely not aerosol spread. It is droplet spread in the traditional sort of way we think of it in terms of r knots and how fast it spreads. Billions of people would be infected instead of millions if this was aerosol in our definition. It's true that in a, in a very classic definition of what's an aerosol and um, droplets, and, and there was a lot of appeal to the WHO from engineers and physical scientists that made the point that we probably had to come together on definitions. But no, I think in our traditional definitions, this is droplet spread. And that means that um, I think what we're doing for masking is very uh, evidence-based. Uh, we are being very careful for the aerosol generating procedures in the hospital to use the stronger N95 masks and for the community and for the traditional patient encounters that the, the um, surgical cloth masks and the, and the surgical masks and the cloth masks are adequate. I see a question that maybe I'll, I'll comment on. This has to do with anticoagulation and you're right, that's a critical thing to be thinking about, um, especially in the very severely ill patients. And so the question is um, whether people with COVID-19 who've been hospitalized should be discharged on anticoagulation. And in this particular um, question, um, question, the person has mild illness, no pulmonary embolus, but does have a, um, a elevated D-dimer. So anticoagulation and uh, hypercoagulability is, is something I think that really has become prominent in our, in our patients with severe COVID-19. I would say it's most problematic in our critically ill patients. Um, that is in critically ill patients, there's really high rates um, in a number of studies, although the, the rates are all over the map in terms of uh, how frequent, but uh, I think no one would deny that uh, venous thromboembolism, thromboembolism is a big problem in severe COVID-19. What there's less consensus on is what we should do about it and what the role of anticoagulation should be. Um, I think the simplest thing to say is that everyone who's hospitalized for COVID-19 should be on prophylactic doses of anticoagulation. Anyone who has a sudden deterioration should absolutely be worked up for um, uh, venous thromboembolism, pulmonary embolus. People, we should have a low threshold to be worried about myocarditis, cardiomyopathies, we've seen all of that. Um, and someone that you can't do workup and they have an unexplained deterioration, um, think about pulmonary embolism and, and sometimes empirically treat it. In terms of whether you should discharge people on anticoagulation, the hematologists I talk to tell us that right now they, they are not departing from their usual care when it comes to um, discharging on anticoagulation. There are some indications for discharge anticoagulation having to do with risk factors for, for, um, for, um, for blood clots, but they're not departing from their, their usual just based on COVID. Now there's some institutional variation, but that's, that's what we've been doing here. I will say one of the, the biggest areas, there's a number of areas of research in terms of therapeutics, but one of the areas that I think we need more information on, and thankfully there are studies going on in this, is the role of anticoagulation. What level of anticoagulation should you give? Should it be prophylactic intermediate or should it be full dose? And I, I think as we keep saying with COVID-19, more to come in terms of data on that. But right now, I would give standard um, discharge anticoagulation, but not based on their COVID. Depends on other risk factors. I think one thing that you had mentioned before was the um, question of the TDF um, versus TAF versus all other backbones in the um, Madrid, uh, the Spain study published in Annals of Internal Medicine. And one question that came up was 
this question that actually we had really wanted to get at the uh, COVID meeting after ACE 2020, which is the prophylaxis trial in healthcare workers in Spain, giving half placebo and then giving half TDF FTC to see if that decreases susceptibility to SARS-CoV-2 among healthcare workers. We ended up, that trial started on April 1st, but we ended up not getting it in time, likely because um, luckily I think the universal masking and other uh, infection control measures have decreased the rate among universal, um, uh, uh, among healthcare workers of getting SARS-CoV-2, which you really showed in Boston with the JAMA article last uh, week uh, that, that luckily the universal masking has really decreased the rate of infections among healthcare workers. So I'm not sure we're gonna get endpoints to actually finalize that study. I don't know if you know. Um, yeah, that was no, what I, I heard. Yeah, I, I, I know that study had been ongoing, but as to endpoints, I also um, would love to know the answer, but it sounds like there might be. I think we may not get there. And that was a question on the chat. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think another question uh, that, uh, this is a very intriguing question, and then I'll go back to one other. Is do you, I, I think I know the answer to this, that I don't think we've ever looked at whether people who are on TDF have lower viral loads of SARS-CoV-2 when they shed. Um, I'm not familiar with any data on that. Are you? I think that's a good question, though. It's an interesting. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Actually, one um, the people I work with, John Lee at Brigham Women's Hospital, has a preprint. Um, of course, that's that's the currency these days. Are preprints, <laughs> but it, it will come out. Looking at rates of, of viremia in SARS-CoV-2, I I have thought that SARS-CoV-2 is unlikely to cause viremia, except for in the most ill patients. Uh, but he actually has a preprint that I have to look at in more detail saying that in some series that uh, viremia is actually pretty frequent, um, not, not frequent over 50%, but appreciable. It's not like a very, very rare event. So maybe with that kind of uh, data, we could look at this tenofovir issue, but I have not seen any, um, I, I don't know of any data on tenofovir and viremia or tenofovir on and um, uh, nasopharyngeal swab levels. That would be interesting. So. Um there are a few questions that I neglected to, to mention about mother to child. So if I could just mention the Tisamo study, um, because I meant to say in age 2020, it was almost like I put it so behind me that I forgot to mention it, um, which is that, as you know, the Tisamo cohort from Botswana, uh, uh, starting with um, a year, more than a year ago now, had brought up the idea that there were some signal with dolotegravir use during pregnancy and neural tube defects in babies born of those mothers. And then every succeeding conference, we saw that rate go down to approach the rate uh, with the Favrins. And now I think the final data was presented. They're not uh, uh, with an additional 39,100 births at um, at the 82020 meeting that it does not look like dolotegravir appreciably changes the rate of neural tube defects among mothers uh, uh, and their babies um, born of those mothers of dolotegravir versus afavirenz. So, so maybe I'll pick up on that and ask you, are, in, in women who come to see you who want, uh, want to have a child, what are you telling them about uh, what regimen they should be on? Yeah, this has really, not this even last bit of data, but even the penultimate data had really changed my practice and, and it had changed the World Health Organization um, uh, guidelines as well, that I think that the, the, the rate is, was even hardly different before and now it's really no different. And uh, that's why the WHO last year just said, it's not dependent on women or men, 
we're going to give Doltegavir for sign therapy to everyone. And I agree with that. And I would not change someone off of Doltegavir if they were childbearing age and wanted to get pregnant. So I've never, uh, I would not do that as with this final piece of data. A couple other questions that came in um, from the audience um, uh, came in even before the, the um, session. So maybe I'll look at those now or, or address them. We can go uh, through them now. It has to do back to the host. And the two questions are, one is um, thoughts on why children are less impacted. And the other is what are possible differences for sex differences? And maybe we can, we can talk on both of those. So in terms of why children are less impacted, I think this is a really interesting story. Um, one thing I will say is that there is a unique syndrome in, in children, or I shouldn't say unique, but it's a syndrome that has been getting a lot of concern, which is the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. This is an acute vasculitis that has some similarities to Kawasaki disease. Interestingly, we didn't see a lot of this come out of um, uh, China. This mostly started getting recognized in Europe, in the UK, and now in the United States. It typically has a rash uh, syndrome, conjunctivitis, abdominal pain, GI symptoms, cardiac disease is the, is the big fear with MIS, MISC. It does seem to be a, um, a post-infectious post phenomenon. Some of the children have had um, SARS-CoV-2 infection recently. One point I want to make about um, MISC is we've seen a couple of these um, um, similar cases in young adults, um, people in 19, 18, uh, even in their early 20s. And, and there was one case report of someone in their, their 40s. So at least Think about it in, in adults as well. As to why children might be less likely to, to get severe COVID, no one knows for sure. One of the theories out there is that children do have lower levels of the uh, receptor for the virus. It's the ACE2 receptor. And so that might has, have something to do with it. And then there may be transmission differences as well uh, in terms of um, you know, the, the spread and the, and the droplets and, and the, you know, how strong the voice is, things like that. Things are, are being discussed in that regard. Yeah, I mean, I really wanted to mention about children because I've been reviewing this very strongly to urge my uh, school to open um, because I have a child uh, ten, under 10 and over 10. Um, so it does seem like there's this question, it's in the nasal epithelium that the ACE2 receptor is lower in children under 10, but then after 10, it seems like it's, it's similar to adults or at least as you get older. And so there's a lot of attention from this study in the New York Times, get a lot of attention this last weekend about the South Korea study um, about uh, transmission. And I think the cleanest and easiest way to say it is transmission does not seem like it's very high from children from that very reason, I think that you said that it's the receptor, but older children probably transmission to adults does happen, um, maybe at the same rates, but uh, we don't even know those cut points between 10 and 17. But, um, but again, the, the, I think the universal masking is in the school setting, which a lot of school-based uh, programs are starting to think about even for very young children um, is going to be a way to prevent, it, it's almost universal precautions. You assume that everyone has it. And that's, you, just like we have universal precautions going into the hospital uh, to help our teachers, we need to that going into the um, schools as well. Uh, uh, a couple of questions yeah. on therapy. Um, going back maybe for a minute to the immunomodulators. Um, one of the questions has, has to do with tocilizumab. Is it safe in people with HIV and patients with solid organ transplant? Um, if someone has an indication for tocilizumab, usually rheumatologic, um, I would say for sure they, they should go ahead and get it. Um, there was a trial that was um, out of Michigan recently in people with COVID. Um, so tocilizumab is one of those immunomodulators that has gotten a lot of interest in COVID because 
you, um, when we talked about that, that thromboinflammation idea, one of the things that's sky high in people with severe COVID is interleukin-6. So this um, tocilizumab is an anti-interleukin-6 antibody. And so people have been really interested in this in part based on case series. What we can say about the IL-6 uh, therapy so far, there's a drug called cerulimab, which is another anti-IL-6 drug. And that was in phase three clinical trials. And that was recently stopped by the company that makes that drug, probably because of lack of efficacy. Details aren't uh, fully available, but the phase three trial for cerulimab um, hasn't gone for forward. For tocilizumab, uh, there are randomized control data that are pending. And I would say until we get those randomized control data, I think it'd be premature to, to say it either works or it doesn't. We, we just don't know. The case series that have come out have shown some effects, but we know from our hydroxychloroquine experience that case series can be, can be problematic in terms of confounding. There are some risks of tocilizumab. Um, one of the risks that we think about for all our immunomodulators is fungal infections. And there's been definitely some series uh, reporting aspergillus cases, either with or without immunomodulation, something to, to keep attentive for. Um, the other immunomodulators that are out there are things like interferons, and, and um, there was a, a lot of press last week or a couple of days ago about interferon beta. Small trial, something to keep your eye on. I'm not ready for prime time yet. And I'll just end with, I think there was this one question on the mother-to-child transmission um, of SARS-CoV-2, and I did want to say that I do think at the COVID-19 meeting, um, I think it was a really good abstract uh, of um, showing, I think, the most detailed examination of taking women who are pregnant with SARS, uh, who had COVID-19, and then taking placental samples, vaginal samples, breast milk samples, and um, you know, really looking for the virus. Hard to tell exactly, but it looked like there was quite a bit of placental virus. So um, I think we were sort of left as the conclusions of that, that it is theoretically possible to have mother-to-child transmission, though we have not seen that. Um, and it's kind of like culturing it from surfaces. It's sometimes hard to tell what that means. Um, and then uh, uh, and then I want to just say something about ivermectin, because I think that's, I really want ivermectin to be saved for, um, worm infections. Um, it was kind of going back to your point about lopinavir or that you need to take so much ivermectin apparently to like to reach the concentrations that would be required to inhibit SARS-CoV-2 in vitro that I think it's like impossible to take that much. So I think we do have to look at like how much you have to take compared to what you what you would actually uh, cure it. So I think when we come up with like in vitro models, we have to think about concentrations. I was on a call with some colleagues from uh, India yesterday, and they said that they were using a lot of ivermectin in oh, their yeah. um, COVID patients. And I said, well, maybe if you're giving them dexamethasone, that'll prevent their Schrondyloides hyperinfection syndrome. So that, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's what you should. That's what you should use your ivermectin for is for the for the worms, but not for the for the COVID. So um, it looks like we're at the end. I think we're at the last minute. I know that there's a conclusion slide, um, so we'll ask, ask that that be put up. But I think I just want to end by thanking you all for joining today. Um, I'll, I'll let Monica um, have the last word. Yeah, I don't see the conclusion, but it is a ple it was really a pleasure to uh, talk to you, just not on the weekend um, as a family member, and uh, today on this call, Raj. And um, really, this was COVID-19, what we know today, um, and wanted to say that these are up coming dialogues um, by IAS USA. Um, Dr. Michael Sag and Chip Shuley will be doing current status of COVID treatment and vaccines on 31st of July, and then a continued discussion of the epidemiology and transmission 
in August by Paul Woberding and George Rutherford. So please join that. And there is even a virtual course, and that will be on Thursday, July 30th. Um, and this will be virtual, but it will be focusing on a lot of what we talked about with the intersection of COVID-19 and new ARV drugs, and a focus on antiretroviral therapy on July 30th. And then all of these other upcoming webinars you can see here on your screen. So please look at the website for upcoming IASUSA websites, and you can always email for um, any comments or suggestions that you have for this dialogue series. Great. Thank, Thank you. you. Good night. Good night.